At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Dedicated is expanding. We are now filming our segments. We are doing some slick new video inside the Sirius XM studios. So if you want to see me fixing the cocktails and having conversations with our awesome guests, go to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or the Sirius XM app, and you can see us in studio. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, it is our honor to be with Richard Haas. I've said many times on this show that good writing is clear thinking, and Richard Haas is a terrific example of that. He's had a distinguished career in public service for his work with the National Security Council in developing Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He received the Presidential Citizens Medal in 1991, later as Director of Policy Planning for the State Department. He was a close advisor to Secretary Colin Powell and to President George W. Bush, and a special envoy for Northern Ireland from 2001 to 2003. He received the State Department's Distinguished Service Award, and he was president of the Council on Foreign Relations from 2003 until just this past June in 2023. He's also the author or editor of more than a dozen books, including one called The World, A Brief Introduction, which I am obsessed with and everyone needs to read. Richard, welcome. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you, Doug, uh, for that extraordinarily and exceedingly generous introduction. Well, it was it was long, and I could have gone on, but at some point we have to have a conversation. Oh, well, I don't want to hold you back. <laughs> <laughs> knock, your, knock yourself out. <laughs> well, I also need to make the cocktail, uh, which you have selected, a dry martini with olives. So I will get started with that. You have a good gin. Not my favorite gin, but a good gin. Oh, what's, right, so I have Hendrix here. What do you Hendrix, like? I'm a Tanqueray 10 kind of guy. Tanqueray, okay. 10. Tanqueray 10, 10 is a really fine gin, but Hendrix is really good. Uh, two God. olives, three. I'm at least a two olive guy. Okay. I, I go three. Maybe uh, three. three. Let's go three. Okay, I'll try it. All right. I'm, now, will, I'm willing to be stretched. Dry and dirty or just dry? Dry, not too dirty. I'm okay. not a dirty guy. My dad actually has this joke he used to tell about dry martinis. So guy walks into a bar, of course. And says the bartender. Just one, not three guys, just one guy. <laughs> Only one guy in this Rabbi, joke. a priest, and a mullet. <laughs> so he goes to the bartender and he says, I want a dry martini. But I'm not kidding around. When I say dry, I mean, don't even put any vermouth in there. I just want you to take the shaker, hold it up, and say the word vermouth. The bartender says, got it. So he puts gin and ice in a shaker. And he holds it up and he says, vermouth. 
Then he finishes making the drink, hands it back to the guy. The guy takes a sip and frowns and says, Loudmouth. <laughs> All right, so not not a knee slapper. You don't need to you don't need to retell that one. Yeah, my I dad has long passed away. He won't even be offended. That's uh, yeah, I doubt that's going to enter the repertoire. <laughs> not a, not an arrow in your quiver. So just a, like a couple drops of vermouth. Yeah, right. that'd be good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I never understood the whole ratios of two to one or three to one. But I just thought that was pretty pretty heavy on the vermouth. Yeah, yeah. I, but you are a good man. I want to compliment you for the fact that it's gin. I've got this thing against vodka martinis. Can I just say that for the I, f- I feel it's... And it's not the real martini. Exactly. Call it something else. I, yeah. I don't get it. Just make up another name for it, but it's not, a, it's not a martini. Yeah, yeah. Plus it does... My mother was a martini drinker. I first learned about them from my mom. And at the end of the day, my parents were highballers, and my dad would come home, my mom would meet him, and he would have a Manhattan, and she would have a martini. And that's what I thought. It was Ozzie and Harriet, and that's what I thought people did. <laughs> that's, I mean, my household growing up, it was a whiskey sour. I'd come home there to a whiskey go. sour every day. Where'd you grow up? Uh, just outside of Philadelphia, Radnor, Pennsylvania. Mine was out on Long Island, out in a little town called Valley Stream. So I'm so glad you said that because I was doing research on you and Wikipedia has failed me again. It said Brooklyn. Did you move to Brooklyn? Bro- I was born in Brooklyn. Thank okay. you, sir. Born in Brooklyn. Cheers. Uh, cheers. I am. And uh, born in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst. But when I was really young, we moved out to uh, Valley Stream. It was a typical post-World War II thing. Mm-hmm. My dad came back from the war and uh, we moved out to the Burbs. And you know, it was a small little house. Valley Stream was the first town over the city line in Nassau County. And it was just not far from Levittown, but it was that starter home, starter life yeah. for young couples uh, after the war. So were you, were, were, is the knack for reading people and diplomacy something innate that you always have? Or were you able to keep the peace between the great powers on the, on the playgrounds of, of New York? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was big on appeasement. <laughs> Just take 10 cents of my lunch money. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, take Venmo. We didn't have Venmo then. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I was, uh, no, I mean, playgrounds were to play. No, I, I never thought of this when I was a kid. I mean, the, I, I don't know about you, but like I knew some kids like at age six, you know, I want to be, I want to be like third base for the New York Yankees. That's what I wanted to be growing up. The idea that I had, I didn't know what diplomacy was or far. So that didn't occur to me until, you know, I first got interested in this at all in high school because of the Vietnam debate. College continued, but as a career, it didn't come to even later. I I just didn't know what I wanted to do, and I didn't spend my time thinking about what I wanted to uh, do. So I certainly wasn't preparing or training for it. Although maybe in the background, you know, one of the, one of the things I was thinking about with COVID is there's so much in the school curriculum that's not written down. You're learning so much just by being there and navigating relationships and challenges mm-hmm. that happen just as a matter of course and showing up to school. Fair enough, and I think we pay a real price in the society for too much time on devices. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen all the statistics about kids who didn't get to school. I, I thought one of the most interesting things of the last year was this Surgeon General talking about the epidemic of loneliness in this country. And this is what thirty years, maybe, after Robert Putnam wrote the article in the book Bowling Alone. Mm-hmm. But there really is a pattern of um, aloneness, which isn't always, but often is loneliness. I was listening last night to uh, Ezra Klein, to his podcast, and he was interviewing 
a woman, I don't know her name, who had written a book about relationships. And it was about how the average man in this country has far fewer relationships Mm -hmm. today than he would have had 10 or 20 years ago. So something's going on. Yeah. And I think the pandemic probably accelerated or exacerbated it. But I think I think it's a serious thing. And you know, my most recent work has been a lot of it's been on civics. And I do think that we've become much more separate as people. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons, for example, I'm a big fan of things like public service is I wanna have venues or mechanisms which bring Americans together and gets them out of their church or socioeconomic situation or educational level or out of their town or out of what news channel they watch and brings them together. And because uh, I worry that there's less and less that Americans have in common. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons we're as polarized as we are. And our faces are down, as you say, in these devices. Ken Burns, the documentarian, has a great line on it. I, I can only paraphrase it, but he basically was putting this work together. And he walked into a room and 20 middle school kids were in a room on the devices. Like They're all together in this room. And yet they were each one alone. They were only looking at their individual device. Yeah, that's true, though. I mean, um, it's amazing. You know, we all grew up without them. And, but I do, I do worry that... They reinforce separateness and work against just the normal interactions. I, I find myself doing it all the time. I'll grab it and I'll flick it, you know, look yeah. at the time, but it's, I wasn't really looking for anything. I, I just, it was almost like a security blanket. Like I was getting my little lovey to touch it, to make sure it's still there. Bit of a nervous tick now, I think. So I, yeah. I do it, even though when others do it around me, I feel it's a little bit rude mm-hmm. and I get put off. Like, I don't think I'd hire someone if he or she came into a job interview and kept looking, and, yeah. checking their email. A dinner table is the worst. Yeah, oh, I think good. you have to make dinner table, uh, and I sometimes violate it, but I'd say hopefully not often, but I think you have to make it a device-free zone. Yeah, our, our home dinner table is that way, but if you meet someone at dinner and they, they plop it on the table and like keep it at the ready, it's like, hey, we're here having dinner. Put that yeah, thing I think away. you can do it at lunch a little bit because it's the work day mm. uh, I, uh, and just leave it there, not check it. But if it goes off and you see whether it's something that, you know, also I, I think it's a difference if you're a surgeon, you know, on call mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. But for most of us, there's not, there's not that so much. So when Morning happens. Joe goes to commercial, does everybody flip it open and start looking or, or, or is there a conversation around the table? Both. Uh, <laughs> all of the above. Yeah, sometimes you look at your devices, sometimes when we can't resist, uh, talking about what was just talked about on, on the uh, <laughs> still hot on yeah. the air yeah. yeah so it's uh and also you know we all know each other so well particularly you know i'm on in, usually in the first hour and whether it's you know willie guys or jonathan lemire or mike barnacle who are, we've been doing this now for 15 years mm-hmm. and so you yeah you know, i don't you, you get to know these people yeah. to some extent yeah so back to the early days of you though you go on to oberlin college yes, which is well known for music i think did you do some music there a little bit. What was great about Oberlin for me is I grew up in a house without much music, and Oberlin was the first place I really got exposed to it. And it, that is something that stayed with me my whole life. It's the first time I ever heard really opera. I think I'd heard one opera before I went to Oberlin. Um, so yeah, it was. Um, it's where I really got introduced to classical music. And while I was there, I'll just give one example. My first year was uh, 1970. I started in 69. Well, 70 was the spring where they did the protests and the, the four uh, students got killed at Kent State. Mm-hmm. They came to, or the rest of the Kent student population moved to Oberlin after that. Their school was shut down. The Oberlin choir and uh, orchestra 
prepared and then went to Washington to play Mozart's Requiem. And I, I made a movie about it because at that point, one of my 16 majors, I went through about at least 16 majors when I was at Irvine. That week, I was a communications major or a filmmaker major. But to listen to a piece of music, go through rehearsal after rehearsal and to hear it broken down, it was like attending a master class. Yeah. And it just opened a box for me about music. Maybe I need to do that. So did you, in, in the end, enjoy opera? I love it. Still do. I have one opera story. Maybe I need to open the box myself because... My wife and I, years ago, I was like, we need more culture. We're here in New York City. Lincoln Center's right here. Let's go to the opera. So we go to the opera, and we get to the end of the first act. What was I, it? I can't remember, and it's maybe a good <laughs> a thing I won't time. say it on the thing, because <laughs> we get to the end of the first act, and I lean back. I'm like, are you finding this as brutal as I am? And she goes, more. I'm like, we're out of here. <laughs> so we, we left. We had good seats. We gave our tickets to someone who was up in the upper decks, and we went and got so a So my first experience with opera was much better than yours. I was, uh, <laughs> it was in elementary school. So I kid you not. Music teacher at my elementary school in Valley Stream, Forest Road Elementary School. Her name was, I kid you not, Jane Beethoven. <laughs> so Jane Beethoven. It's like being named, you know, what's the butler's name? Uh, Jeeves. Jeeves. If you're Jeeves, you got to. <laughs> yeah. So Jane Beethoven uh, wrote, I think his name was Harold Schoenberg, who was then the music critic of the New York Times. And he gets this letter from this woman named Jane Beethoven. says, we're doing this opera at Forest Road Elementary School. Would you please come and review it for her? And of course, he can't resist and does. And it was the magic flute. And I wasn't in it, but it was the first time, again, I'd just been exposed to opera. And anyhow. And it was good. All right. Well, so I, I love it. it. All right. We'll go back. Mozart, we'll go back more. Start with Mozart or some Italian opera. Don't start with German or something heavy. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say because we, we actually just the other week were saying we got to try again. I mean, this, yeah. this story is 12 years old plus. And, I think once uh, every 12 so, years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> more like a cicada or whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is amazing. Then you go to Oxford for a, for a PhD, MA and a PhD. Uh, and from there, right to the DOD. Right, uh, seventy-eight out of no. Oxford, and then seventy-nine department. Actually, there's some other things in between. I, I worked for a while. I spent about a year, year and a half working with Congress as a legislative aide, first an intern, then a legislative aide to a for a senator who was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So that was my first experience with government. Mm -hmm. Then I spent after Oxford a few years working at uh, a think tank in London, the Institute for Strategic Studies, and then it was seventy. Eight, I think it was. I was giving a talk at some conference, and there were some folks there from the Pentagon, and they said, "You seem like a pretty bright guy. Why don't you come back to Washington and work with us?" I said, "Sounds like a good idea." I said, "I need a little bit of time." So six months later or so, in '79, I came back to Washington, and yeah, worked at the Pentagon. And a few months after, or six months after I got there, two big things happened. You had the revolution in Iran the taking of the hostages, mm -hmm. and then you had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I had just written my doctoral dissertation on that part of the world. Oh, my gosh. So suddenly, yeah. here I was in my late 20s. And Everyone's coming to you. <laughs> it was crazy. Well, and what's so great about government, and that, like my daughter now, who's just turning 30, works in city government, government can be an amazing opportunity for young people. I remember a friend of mine was a lawyer for the uh, Justice Department, and he was 28 or 29. He was representing the U.S. government in a big lawsuit. The people his age on the other side, working in the private sector, they were carrying the briefcases for the lawyers doing all the arguing. Government can be an amazing opportunity for young people to get a responsibility yeah. uh, and influence early on. And it was for me. It was just, just happenstance that big things happened and I actually knew a little bit about them. So you've had perspective from the late 70s to the current day. And I'm always wary of people who come and say, 
it's never been more crazy. We've never been more politically divided or racially divided. Because I said, well, we've had a lot of crazy in the past. I, in certain categories, I would say we are pretty far over on the crazy side of the spectrum. But in preparing for our talk today, I watched a bunch of your interviews online. And I saw one that you did a couple of years ago. I think it was with the Wall Street Journal. And you had a segment in there where you said, we are in uniquely dangerous times. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting you used uniquely because it's not most dangerous. It's uniquely dangerous. You right. had three buckets. One was sort of, there were uh, several regions of geopolitical issues. Mm -hmm. um, one was uh, cyber and space and climate change. And then the third bucket was uh, a sense of America's withdrawal from the international stage. And those were sort of the three buckets of dangers. And I was wondering if you could refresh that because sure. that interview is a couple of years old. Actually, no, it's a couple months ago. That was the Wall Street Journal interview from the CEO forum a few months ago, actually. Okay. And yeah, but pretty pretty much. Uh, we're, we've got geopolitical challenges in three geographies, obviously, in Europe uh, with the Russians in the Middle East with Iran and others and their proxies. And then we've got the challenge of China, North Korea, whatever, and in Asia, what's now called the Indo-Pacific. You've got... Um, Global challenges. We just got through the pandemic. You've got climate. You've got new technologies, cyber, uh, AI, for which there aren't arrangements or institutions. Mm -hmm. And then all this against the backdrop of American uh, division, polarization, a lack of consensus about what we want to do in the world, a lack of will at times to do much of anything. And it's this combination of a lot of things going on, if you will, in the foreign policy world, in the inbox. And the United States, not particularly attentive to the inbox mm -hmm. and not, uh, what's the word, unified about what to do about it. That, it's the, it's that, that combination that I think is really, really toxic. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen anything quite like it. You know, my most recent book, the one after the world, which you were so nice about, is a book called The Bill of Obligations. And the subtitle is The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. And it's a book about... Uh, the domestic challenges we face, and my argument that the biggest national security challenge is us, it's kind of the Pogo line. And, I, and, it, and that's what I think is different. You know, we've had challenges before, even say 68, the year of the assassinations, the year of the protests. But those still took place, if you will, within the system. There were, there were certain boundaries or guardrails. Even in Nixon and Watergate a few years later, he accepted the system and at the end of the day, wasn't a revolutionary. He was a conservative who broke the rules and took took his medicine and resigned. What we have now is something I think fundamentally different and more dangerous. So again, this combination of all the stuff coming at us at precisely the moment we're not prepared to deal with it effectively, mm -hmm. that if you're not worried about that, you're not paying attention. Yeah. The withdrawal thing, you talk a bit about factors that led to World War I in your in your book. It, you know, the Ottoman Empire, it, it, prior to World War I, we had all these empires in Austria yep. and the Ottomans were receding in power and pulling back, which put these regions sort of up for grabs and everyone was sort of coming in. And, and that was in an era of this sort of social Darwinism, you know, where, mm -hmm. so listeners know that the Darwinism is the, you know, survival of the fittest. But there was this doctrine in that era, late, late uh, 19th century into the early 20th century of social Darwinism, that it's if, if a country or if a society is stronger then a neighboring society, not only is, a, is it morally okay, it's an obligation to take them over. You know? So when the Balkans came up for grabs, people sort of came pouring in to, to take over. Well, and uh, as we withdraw, it's the same thing as, as the Ottomans withdraw as the, and the Austrians sort of American withdrawing sort of puts things up for grabs a little bit. Well, a lot of history happens when you have this combination of weakness and strength. 
which I think is what you're describing. And when large empires unravel, more recently we had the, the unraveling of the Soviet empire, mm-hmm. both the external empire that was Eastern Europe as well as the Soviet Union itself. We had the unraveling of the former Yugoslavia. We're still dealing with some of the unraveling in the Middle East of the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just, you know, that's like kindling for conflict. And then you have certain countries, whether they're medium powers or greater powers, who are not status quo. And they see opportunity and they take it. Uh, Russia going into Ukraine was a good example of, of that trying to reclaim what it saw as its part of its internal empire. Needless to say, we, we and others push back. You see Iran, which is in many ways an imperial power, trying mm-hmm. to create uh, a Middle East that's very much in its, uh, in its uh, image. So th- this, is, this is one of those moments. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I feel we're living, in, instead of the end of history, I feel we're living in the revival of history, that we're very much living in history. This is just one of those moments where every day I get up and I just look at, you know, I read the papers and I'm just uh, somewhere between impressed and overwhelmed by just what is coming at us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, the, you know, the good news is it's interesting and important. The bad news is it's, it's too interesting. Mm. There's a question I want to get to later, but sure. I think it fits now, which is um, you're talking about how divided we are and how unprepared we are to take decisive action because we, are, we have so many different kind of voices internally. And getting back to history, wars, you know, a thousand years ago were largely driven on religious grounds. You know, we had the uh, Knights Templar doing the Holy Wars. Remember when you were in school, gold, glory, and God, gold, glory, and God. And wars tended to be, you know, it was either yeah. uh, greed, uh, religion, uh, ambition, whatever. Yeah. And, and so it was like the Christians versus Islam. And then, or even within yeah. Christianity, it was, you know, the Catholics were fighting the Protestants for centuries through Europe. And then, as you point out in the book, the, the world, the Treaty of Westphalia comes around in the mm-hmm. early 1600s, and there's a slow twist to wars being driven not so much by religion, to, it's more for king and country. You know, we have nations now, and so we're fighting wars based on that, right. and this rising tide of nationalism sort of crests around World War I. And so it's not we're fighting Catholics, Protestants anymore. It's, you know, this country versus that country. Northern Ireland suggests we're still fighting a little bit. <laughs> well, there's a bit of that, too. <laughs> no, but yeah, I think your, your point's right, that... Um... With the rise of the modern nation state and and the industrial revolution and so forth, this combination of different identities and technologies Mm -hmm. fueled a lot of- But now it seems like it's shifted. There is like a resurgence of nationalism, Mm -hmm. but to me, it it seems almost like reactionary to anti-nationalism and people are identifying in different ways. For example, some of this is in the book, but in in Iraq or Iran, I think there are lots of people who identify first as Sunni or Shia before Iraqi or Iranian, Mm -hmm. or there are people who identify first as Jewish rather than American, and they could say, you know, I I actually need to get to Israel now, or people who identify as black before they they identify as American, or trans before American. So it's almost like this rise of nationalism, and yet there's almost a rise of regime change feeling within America, and, and you see a sort of rise in nationalism in France or Germany, but it also seems to be in reaction to what they perceive as a threat. I'm thinking about what you're saying. Look, in this country, I, uh, I agree that there's a rise of identity, and I worry about that. I mean, identity politics, I think, are bad for a country that was founded not on identity, or the only identity we were meant to have was Americanness. Mm-hmm. That was what was unique about the American experiment, and increasingly, you know, a lot of people might put other things first, and that 
that worries me domestically. Uh, makes it very hard to build coalitions. Makes it very hard to to compromise. It's very hard to compromise when identity is at issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so existential or fundamental. And when it becomes an international issue, uh, I mean, identity. If you have a Slavic identity, it's one of the things that drives Putin to think that he has rights to Ukraine. Oh, look, these are. It could be nationalism. It could be, uh, what I'd say is we're living in a time where people have, have found causes. Mm-hmm. It could be national causes. They could be religious causes. They can be identity causes, but it's part of the brew. And again, a lot of these things were kept in check in some ways during the Cold War because of geopolitical, if you will, constructs. And I think with the end of the Cold War, a lot of these, um, if you will, the systems that kept things in check during the Cold War in some ways got dismantled the attitudes or the policies that were associated with them stood down. And we're living at a moment where we don't have in place, in some ways, the mechanisms for dealing with the pressures that are emerging. And look, it's the reason, it's the reason that we're having as much conflict as we are, and it's the, it could drive more in the future. And you know, Nothing's inevitable, but again, um, you've got to be a little bit worried about some of the trends out there. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been advising at, at top levels on, on all of this stuff for years and now broadcasting to millions. And I, I wanted to get a, a window into your process for how you do prepare for that, um, because there's a, there's a great level of clarity in your writing. And I imagine when you're briefing the president, for example, mm-hmm. you got to keep it tight. So as, and there's that famous lawyer joke, like if I had more time, I'd have written a shorter brief. And so when you're getting ready to either brief the president or, or when you approach a book or a piece, how do you prepare and organize your thinking? So I once had a professor at Oberlin. One of my 16 majors, as I said before, was religion, comparative religion. And Professor uh, Frank one day gave a great lecture. He was the professor of New Testament there. And I studied it, as I once told him. We never got around to that one in my house, but uh, I'm open to it. And I um, want, to, want to hear about it. So he gave an amazing lecture. And afterwards, I said, uh, Professor Frank, I-, I hope you don't mind my asking you this, but uh, how long did it take for you to prepare it? So he looked at his watch and he said, mm, about 30 years and 30 minutes. <laughs> and that st- obviously stuck with me because I remember it. And I think, you know, by the time you've done this as long as I have for 40 or 50 years, you have a pretty big bank to, you know, kind of dip into. Mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about these issues. I've read a lot about them. I've written about them. And then when something comes along, you can plug it in. It gives you context. It gives you a perspective. And I, I just have certain, what's the word, constructs or filters uh, through which I tend to view history or view events. I mean, the most influential- Do you ever have to challenge yourself that that could actually be a detriment? Like, do, from, do I need to take 10 minutes and break out of my construct and come at this from another way? It's a great question. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't quite do that. I find the constructs are necessary, but I always ask myself, are there assumptions buried in here that need to be challenged? And mm-hmm. assumptions can be really dangerous things. And they get you in trouble. And some of my bigger mistakes were because of unchallenged or untested assumptions. Uh, a little bit, if, if, you, if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I mean, the Iraqi weapons of mass destruction debacle. If you assume that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction, then when he doesn't cooperate with inspectors, you assume that's because he's hiding them rather than he's hiding the fact he doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> assumptions are really, Putin made lots of assumptions before he went into Ukraine. Assumptions are dangerous things. So for me, the most important thing 
is to deconstruct an argument and see what it's predicated on. But I find constructs useful. I mean, the book that influenced me the most was written by a friend of mine. He was a professor at Oxford towards my tail end there, a guy named Headley Bull, an Australian. And uh, Headley wrote a book called The Anarchical Society. Sounds really wonky. It is pretty wonky. But if you deconstruct the title, Anarchy and Society, and what he basically said was that any time in history, you have forces of anarchy, of, of disorder, centrifugal forces, and you have forces of society, things that bring the world together. And what history is at any moment is the balance between the two and the trends. Well, I find that a really useful construct. So when I look at the world, I, I think about it in those terms. What are the forces that are bringing this region or the world together? What are the forces, be they domestic or international, that are pulling the world apart? And it's the balance between them that I find such a, a useful way of summing up what is going on. It's the reason I feel now, looking forward, we're at a moment in history where the forces pulling us apart, anarchical forces, are stronger than forces of society. That's mm -hmm. why I'm so worried. Mm -hmm. At other moments, I didn't feel that way. Maybe it's the gin, but when you were saying that, I was thinking of the Federalist Papers. So we have this theory that you know man is is wild and needs you know structure and and oh, laws, absolutely. or man is naturally good, and the structure and laws are what you know ruin man. And and it's, it's that constant balance between those two philosophies. So I lean more towards the conservative, conservative of the small c, the idea that the natural state of things ain't great, mm -hmm. whether within societies or in the world. I don't I don't think order, justice, any of those things are the natural state of affairs. They can sometimes come about, but only because good actors or people or countries bring them about. But left to their own devices, you know, systems tend to come apart, mm -hmm. whether they're internal domestic systems or international systems. So that's my starting point. So I, I think we need structure. We need, and again, the United States has played such an important role for the last 75 years in the world. Uh, not doing it unilaterally, but ordering the world, building institutions after World War II, building alliances, taking the lead when certain challenges came along. And the reason I'm worried now is that we seem to be less prepared to do that. A couple quick process questions that are the really technical <clears throat> ones that I and, and many listeners like to know. If you're preparing a brief for the president, are you writing by hand or are you typing it into a computer? And many people are different on this thing, but how, how do you do it? Well, first I walk and I think. <laughs> I do my best thinking when I walk. I write my books in many ways in my head walking. When it was, you know, when I'd work at the White House or something like that, I'd mainly think about it beforehand. If I had time, I'd type. I, I like typing it out. My handwriting's really bad. I mean, it's, it's an embarrassing moment when you look at the page and you can't read it. So, <laughs> and as my eyes get worse, I type it out in really big font. <laughs> now, have, have there been a situation where it's so sensitive that it, it cannot be written down. Everyone's saying, listen, we're only going to speak this out on a grass sure. field where no one can eavesdrop on us. Sure. Because if you write things down and they're in computers, you just never know where that goes. Yeah. Right? So there's certain, I think there's an understanding in any institution, whether it's government or anything else, whether it's things can be sensitive because of classification, they can just be sensitive because they're sensitive. So, you know, we used to have what we called the Washington Post test. And if you were going to say something uh, or write something, You'd ask yourself first, how would I feel if this appeared in the Washington Post? Right, and it's it's not a bad it's not a bad rule. What what is the policy around archiving thing? I'm, I'm doing some research on historical books. I'm in archives. And I'm looking at these State Department files and things like that. And sometimes there's letters from you know Churchill from to Lord Beaverbrook or whatever it is in in the old days, which is sort of the golden age of archives. Everybody wrote letters back then, so text messages. But if you have a communication 
to Secretary Powell. Mm-hmm. Does someone then capture that and say, okay, now this goes into a box and that box goes into an archive 10 years from now and then some researcher can review it 50 years from now? Only up to a point, but the more I was in government and as technology changed, increasingly what I noticed that what was put on paper was often the least important stuff and the least representative stuff and some of the more sensitive stuff never got put on paper. So I have this image of historians of the future saying, ah, I've got this original source document and they're right, they've got it. What they can't know or won't know is to what extent either it's accurate or more important, it's representative. You can be accurate in the small, if you will, but inaccurate in the large because you're missing something. And I think increasingly historians are going to be missing things. So it'll be very different to to come back and look at the years 2010 to 30 as opposed to, you know, 1940, 50. For sure. I remember, look, there were moments, I'll give you, I'll tell you one story, which I don't think I've told before. So it was uh, just before, get my years right here. So this is 2003, just before the start of the uh, war in Iraq. And this is maybe January or February, and I was against the war. And I wrote a memo to Powell about why we shouldn't go to war and why we had alternatives. And then I was worried if I put this memo in the system, it might leak. And I was worried for him because the White House already viewed him, shall we say, with some suspicion that he wasn't totally on board. Mm -hmm. And I was worried if it got out that this was happening at the State Department. So I handed it to him. I never put it in the formal system. Mm-hmm. So my hunch is it's nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, but I wrote it, he got it, and so that's a perfect example. So when, when you write, is it on official paper and letterhead? Yeah. So it's well, a, not it's letterhead, it's just what a memo paper. But they'll, you know, be like, well, actually, it was, I take it back. It was a kind of letterhead. It might be a, what kind of a memo it was, a uh, mm-hmm. decision. It wasn't a decision memo, it was just a, a memo memo. And I have no, it was never introduced into the formal system, so it won't end up in any archive. Mm hmm. But, that, you know, but I wrote it, we talked about it, and at the end of the day, he said, I got it, I'll do what I can, but I don't think they're receptive to this right now, which was true, to say the least. That's a perfect example. It was a really interesting moment. And part of me regrets I didn't put it into the system, because I wish there were historians one day who will say, hey, there were dissenters, mm-hmm. but I just didn't do it, because I was worried that it could leak and, uh, about the politics of the leak. Well, it's in the system now through through this show. (laughs) We just (laughs) made some history. (laughs) We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... 
Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. So I'll return your story with one of my own, which is how I found your book, The World. So I was meeting my wife for dinner in the city, and I had about 30 minutes to kill. So I stopped into a Barnes & Noble to browse around, and I saw this book with the title, The World, A Brief Introduction. And I thought, well, I'll read on for the punchline. And then I saw the name Richard Haas, which is a name I know and respect. And I thought, well, this is not a Monty Python thing. This is a sincere (laughs) effort at at a great book. So read on. So I went to the the table of contents there. And I saw uh, a chapter taking a, a period of history from the Treaty of Westphalia, 1618, to the outbreak of World War I in 1914, almost 300 years in nine pages, at which point I was off to the register to get the book to say, I got to know how he's going to do that. And you talk about the mission of the book up front, which is very important. I was wondering if, if yeah. you tell the listeners you know, what you're trying to achieve with this book. Thank you for Wh- Which, by the way, is the answer to how he did it is extremely well. Thank you. I've increasingly made a decision, almost a division of labor, that when I write books, I want them to be accessible. I want them to be a bit evergreeny. They don't need just to be for experts. I want to write something for experts that's immediate. I can write articles. I can do an article for Foreign Affairs, the magazine that the Council on Foreign Relations publishes, or I can write it for the Wall Street Journal or somebody else. Uh, it's it's time sensitive and potentially ephemeral, and but I'm writing it for the expert community, almost the insider conversation. Uh, the book you're talking about, the world of brief introduction, that's a book I wanted to write for normal people, for students, for people who uh, just wanted to get a, a feel, a grounding. It might be the only book they'd ever read, or maybe it would be the first book, and they'd go on to read a lot more. I didn't know, so I wanted to make it really accessible short. I didn't assume anything. Every time I mentioned a date, an event, a person, I then defined it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assumed that people were coming to it without, and I didn't mean that to be, what's the word? It's, it's not an insult. I just didn't want to assume anything. And I mm-hmm. wanted to make it almost uh, self-contained. So somebody who didn't have background could say, okay, now I understand. Thank you. And that was the purpose of it. Uh, but I really wanted to make it an accessible as a kind of clarity. It means no jargon. It's important to be short. It's important to explain. Well, and I, as a parent of three young kids who are in school now, what I'm finding <clears throat> is there's a lack of teaching of some of the basics. And it's a scary absence of knowledge of our own country's history and how the world works, how our, how our country interacts with other countries. And this book is such a great primer. I consider myself pretty well-read and, and a lover of history. And this book either reminded me of things I'd forgotten or taught me things I didn't know about how the UN works and, and a number of things. And it's a quick, like, sort of, it's just really easy to go down the book. I mean, you can, I actually read it in a couple sittings, Great. but you could grab 15 minutes here or there and get a couple quick chapters and learn a ton on aspects of our history or how our world works and how countries interact. Great. That was the idea. I mean, the last three books I've written. That was my model, The mm-hmm. World in Disarray, this one, The World of Brief Introduction, and 
the Bill of Obligations, and I, all three were short, primer-like, and that was the idea. And f- for what it's worth, I learned a lot in writing them. It's really hard to write short books, and it's really hard to write primers, because mm-hmm. you've got to have a, a feel for the subject matter and understand that you can't bullshit. You've got to own it and explain it. I've learned more in writing these books than I wrote than when I wrote more traditional books where I could almost skate along the, the subject matter because I assumed a lot about what the reader was bringing to the book. These last three books, I assumed the reader wasn't necessarily bringing a lot to the, the book. So it forced me to really know and understand the material. So I, I, I got that's a, a great tremendous, point. In order to explain something in a simple, simple way, you really have to know it in a very advanced oh, way. No, uh, uh, it's, I've been really lucky. I mean, it's it's been for me a fun experience to write, particularly the last book when I wrote this book about American democracy, the Bill of Obligations. I'm not an expert on that. I admit it. Uh, I'm, I'm a foreign policy guy. I'm not a historian of a, of a, of the last couple of hundred years. So it forced me either to read things for the first time, mm-hmm. or it forced me to reread things with a different almost consciousness or or, or focus to then absorb it, internalize it, and then try to explain it. Wow, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's tough, but it was it was great for me. I actually I learned I learned more in writing these these basic books than I again than I do in writing the more quote unquote expert books. But, so this this is, reminds me of one more story that I wanted to mention to you about in my experience of reading the books. I love the idea that this is educating our youth, which you talk about seeing high schools. You did a bunch of research on what high school students and college students are learning, and it's like mm-hmm. it's kind of scary, the ability to get through an Ivy League degree without having done certain things. Mm-hmm. And so I love the idea of meeting our youth kind of where they are, you know, and educating them. And I was thinking, I wonder, you know, if the Council on Foreign Relations is doing something on YouTube or Facebook. Like, that's where the youth is. You got to go find them where they are and, and put something out there to educate them where they're going to consume it. Because, you know, a book is, this is great for me, but where did my kids get it? So then, again, in my in my homework for you, I was thinking, uh, you know, they need something like Schoolhouse Rock. I grew up on Schoolhouse Rock where the bill is sitting on the steps lamenting he's only a bill and not a law and sings the song. And that taught me something. So they got to get that. So I'm like, you know, before I level this, you know, criticism at Richard, I better see where they, if they've done anything. So I go to, I go to CFR.org, which by the way is a terrific site. It's very rich and deep, has lots of things. And there's this game called, uh, called Convene the Council. And it's got these avatars, and you can be the president, and then you get advised by the council. With, it was a joint project with iCivics. Oh, really? It was terrific. Oh, good. However, I also thought like, eh, like it was a little bit classroomy. Like it was like PowerPoint slides put to oh. avatars. I thought, and I'm like, they got to get like the creators of Fortnite and do something really dynamic and fun and and that sort of thing. But uh, I, I don't know. It's it seemed. Um, I love that you guys are thinking about that and educating oh, yeah. youth we and trying to an get this We created an entire online curriculum called World 101. We created what you just mentioned, Convene the Council, which was mm-hmm. for a younger age. Mm-hmm. We created all sorts of explainers uh, and basic uh, materials, all sorts of simulations, mm-hmm. model diplomacy, mock national security councils, mock uh, UN security councils. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a rich a trove of uh, educational materials. And the whole argument was we needed, even though at the Council of Foreign Relations, we needed to be a, a service, if you will, for students mm-hmm. and not just for people already inside the foreign policy tent, mm-hmm. you know, our members or people who 
our diplomats or read the New York Times, whatever. We've got it. We also we made the decision we had to operate at multiple levels, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, we. But my, my only advice would be soup it up a bit, get the virtual reality glasses somehow, or you know, because <laughs> you know, my kids. We actually we we do permit a little Fortnite, but they they play almost. They're not allowed on social media. They do almost no gaming, but they're friends. It's like. They can't read a book for 15 minutes without getting antsy and jumping around, mm-hmm. but they could stare at the screen and play Fortnite for five hours straight. So, Elon anyway, Musk as well. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you can get on that, I think that okay. would be... Uh... All right, before we get duly into... Noted, light... Duly noted. All right, thank you, sir. Um, before we jump into the lightning round, yes, I would love to get your thoughts on a couple, or one, one thing in particular that is uh, on my mind, as again, as a parent, which is fentanyl. And I keep hearing these stories of... you know, One story I heard recently was... There was this terrible game. People would put put like a like a touch dose of fentanyl on a on a dollar bill on the street, and if someone picked it up, it would attach to their skin. I don't know how true that is, but the fentanyl is a is a terrible epidemic, sure. and for parents, they're very worried. Our kids are getting into that teenage uh, realm where they they experiment with things, and there's um. There's this one group out. It's like one pill can kill. If you get anything laced with fentanyl, it's over. And uh, I know, I know, one of the lightning crown, uh, questions is on domestic issues, but I want to get your thoughts on fentanyl and and just the sort of influx of some of these dangerous. Look, it's scary for kids, but also for anybody. If you're, it's so uh, fentanyl can be so lethal, so intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a, you know, a medic or something, uh, you're doing you know, emergency uh, help, you're incredibly vulnerable to this sort of uh, thing. I mean, when I was, you know, when, when we raised our kids, it was pre-fentanyl, and we used to worry about other drugs and so forth and pressure. Or alcohol was actually the biggest concern. Uh, one of the few advantages of bringing a kid up in New York City is kids didn't drive. Yeah, and in the burbs, even now, we have Ubers and things like that. Right, so it but helps. back when, you know, when I, when I was growing up, drinking and driving was a real concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and there's also marijuana and other stuff. Uh, so, but fentanyl's different. I mean, the, there's a lethality to it, the intensity of it, and that's scary. I mean, if I were a parent with young kids, you know, I'd be scared. But, yeah. also, but, but, I'm, uh, but I think it's a broader problem, not just kids, and, and, you know, other than educating your kids and you're prepared for various contingencies but look i think being a parent is a never-ending process of being worried about your kids vulnerability and when they're one year old you worry about choking or two years old sticking their fingers in a socket (laughs) 18 years old getting in a car it just never it's just bracket has its own thing 100 percent it's you know the specific cause of your concern but and when they're 40 years old it's other stuff um I think parent is the institutionalization, being a parent is the institutionalization of worry. Yeah. All right, on, on to happier topics. The, the lightning round. <laughs> Have I, I just I, depressed everybody? <laughs> I mean, by, actually, let me just I add. I brought it up. I apologize. Let me just add, it's also the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Uh, pa- uh, yeah. I should just add that. It's the, the relationships with being a parent is, is a, a true blessing, and the relationship with my kids I wouldn't give up for anything. It, it's just funnier and more interesting and just better than I ever uh, imagined. So I just don't want to leave anybody with the impression it's only a negative. You know, to that point, I've never told this story, but my, my dad was old. He was very sick. He was, he was about to pass away. And, you know, sort of in his last stretch there, my wife asked him about the kids. I have three siblings. And my wife said, what, what was your favorite stage with the kids? And he said, 
right now? Great answer. I actually, I, I agree with that. I, I, <laughs> I got in trouble once for saying this. I probably won't repeat it word for word. But when kids are really young, they're not quite as interesting as they are as they get later, as mm-hmm. when they get older. And so as kids get older, I just find that they be, you're still their parent, but you're also increasingly become friends and other things. And so I love it as the relationships evolve. It just, it's, mm. uh, it's, 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 it's quite, it's quite spectacular. Yeah. All right. So to the lightning round. Yes, sir. I'm sitting down. Your favorite book as a kid. So, I, uh, a couple of things come to my curious George to be read to me with the lion tamer or whatever it was. And then um, I read a series of sport books when I was a kid. I didn't know at the time. I only knew 30 years or 40 years later. They were called Chip Hilton. And they were books about these young men. It turns out they're very popular in Christian circles. I didn't know it at the time. But these were basically admirable young men who sports were the center of their life and it taught all sorts of lessons of virtue. And there was a whole, must've been 20 or 30 of them. And I read them all. So your answer there, the first one struck me a little bit because in the many interviews we've done here, no one has said Curious George except just the other day, Mike Rowe. So you and Mike Rowe have something in common. Uh, I get it. I mean, as a parent reading children's books, I remember, is your mama a, a llama? I, mean, <laughs> I asked my son, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I went through all these books. Uh, yeah, but Curious George, I, I, I was my fave. Yeah. All right, book or books you're reading now? Not a whole lot. I just finished Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Elon Musk, which um, had more dimensionality to it than I than I thought, because mm-hmm. Musk does both for better and for worse. Uh, I'm reading on the latest Jack Reacher. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, I admit that. I also watch Suits. I admit that. Did you watch the show Reacher? No, I haven't done that. Oh, should I? Great on Amazon. Yeah, okay, really I good. I mean, and I know I know Lee personally, and he feels this is a oh, great. Really? representation of oh, bringing right. research I've read probably I think I've read all I think if you go on my Kindle it's mm-hmm. all you see it's really us for the I'm supposedly a foreign policy guy but you see it's <laughs> all the Jack Reacher dolls. it's like 30 Jack Reacher dolls Lee Trials should thank me I basically put his kids through <laughs> orthodontry or something uh I've done him a big uh that's yeah, it's one of my I, I basically my escapes this year are are, are that suits and the Knicks because the Knicks are fine. The Knicks are the only New York team that's winning some games. Yeah, yeah. All right, next question: the most daunting international issue facing America today. International issue? Well, the big uh, biggest national security issue is us, our mm-hmm. own ability to cope with the world internationally. Well, I don't know. Uh, I'd say probably. Uh, Right now is what to do. I don't know what it is. Is it the Middle East? Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it climate change? Is it all of the above? Probably all of the above. But again, the biggest national security challenge is us. Us and our ability to address anything. Yes, sir. How about most daunting domestic issue? Well, a different way of putting it is um, we're not doing what we have to do to meet our challenges. I mean, the dysfunctionality in Washington has reached. a scary point. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think we're more part? So I, I, I think about this a lot because I, I read, this is actually years ago, I read John Meacham, a fellow uh, MSNBC guy and a great guy. He's one of the best public speakers I've seen. I've seen oh, him at a couple China's, of book events. Uh, and he's just so funny and charming. He's got the Southern draw. He's just amazing, funny stories. But he wrote this book on Andrew Jackson. And as I read it, 
I was like, man, if we think we're partisan now, it was crazy then under Andrew Jackson. So I don't know. Is it more partisan now than ever? Or what do you think? Yes. Yeah, more now. I think so, yeah. Um, I think it's, it, and there's ways in which it gets magnified. But John's right. There, you know, people have to be careful about looking back at the good old days because the good old days weren't always so, so we got through them. Hopefully and ideally we'll get through these. I'm just not, I'm just not sanguine. I, when, you know, my biggest concern when people say we, we've always had these problems and we've gotten through them, I just don't want anyone to be complacent. Mm. Uh, so yeah, hopefully we'll get through them. Maybe you know, likely we will, but I, no one should just take it for granted. And it, uh, John wasn't saying it was crazier then. I was just reading the book. You know, he wasn't he wasn't making no. But John is one of the today. big fan of his, and he's just one of the important, I think, thoughtful, considered, moral voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, John is a he's a young man who's impersonating an old man or vice versa. I, I don't know one of them, but you get the idea. John is like, when he speaks, he kind of, he has a little bit of history in his soul. Yeah. It, he seemed, it, it, uh, it, I imagine he needs to be sipping bourbon as he speaks, you know, a little, little sip well, of he's bourbon. Well, like, like maybe draw. wearing like a smoking jacket <laughs> with a cigar and sipping bourbon, a little bit like Alistair Cookie Monster. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I saw him do a uh, a talk on his book on H.W. Uh, Bush, and he had so many fun stories about oh, no, the I president said, well, and and the first lady. We worked together. I, I was a source, and I talked to him a lot because I, I worked for H.W. for those four years, and I was terribly, terribly fond of him. And mm-hmm. I think history will be incredibly generous, as it should be. Mm-hmm. I think, if, unless my numbers are wrong, this is the hundred. This year marks the hundredth anniversary of his birth. Okay. Wow. And but John's biography was uh quite wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Uh let's see best way for a citizen to stay informed. Good question. It's not easy. I mean, we live in an age where there's more information at our fingertips than ever before, but unfortunately there's more misinformation at our fingertips than ever before and there's not little post-it notes that say read this, not that. Uh I would say read a couple of good newspapers. I mean, multi-source is one thing. Mm-hmm. Not, don't just read one. So read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or the Washington Post, or the Financial Times. The Economist is a pretty good read, but those are still the the best things if you want to stay up on the on the issues. And more broadly, though, multi-source. If you're going to watch Fox for a little bit, fine to see what's going on in that echo chamber. But then watch MSNBC or CNN, mm-hmm. or listen to NPR. But Basically, are there certain people you follow on Twitter or X? I and mean, that's one of the things less I do. So is, X. I find yeah. um, it's really sad what's happened to Twitter or X. I, I used to go to it quite a lot, both uh, to receive, to read stuff, mm-hmm. and every day up to a you know, up to a few years ago in the old, if you will, when it was still Twitter, I used to learn things. I'd come across articles or whatever I hadn't heard about, and I'd transmit. I'd maybe tweet two or three times a day. I almost never tweet anymore. But other than, I mean, I on on X, I follow Reuters and I follow yeah, there's that know, kind of people stuff. from right, left, center. Or well, I'll just sometimes go on their websites. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's useful for that. There's certain podcasts now I'll I'll listen to. But if mm-hmm. you only have a limited amount of time, yeah. I would say you know, there's a couple of newspapers or things like the BBC or a few other Reuters, a few a few websites that you'll get you'll get the basics. Yeah. Foreign city, you recommend every American visit at some point. Well, I've just come back recently from Sydney, which was sensational. Did you go to the opera? 
the opera house. I didn't go to the opera. I went to the opera house. I don't think the opera, it wasn't played. It was their Christmas vacation, so I don't think it was on. Okay. So you toured the opera house, but did not no, I've been actually there. I've been sit to Sydney. some brutally boring opera. That would, that's your department. <laughs> I would have gone to some wonderful, fascinating opera. I need a list from you after the show, okay. please. Uh, but really like Sydney, like Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, love Tokyo. Love Japan. Yeah. Japan is, to me- How's the food? I hear the food's terrible. Are you nuts? <laughs> really? It's good? After I an hour, that's they're the like first thing you said that is, really, that is really questionable. Really? What'd you oh, eat? In Japan? Yeah. Well, there's things like sushi and sashimi. But I mean, like, don't they eat weird crabs yeah, and little, like, oh, crustacean I, I, I don't eat any of those things because okay. I don't eat shellfish. But uh, you, can, you, can, you can navigate your way. So the food was good. Okay. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, but Japan works. It's just a fascinating fascinating place but sydney's one of the most beautiful cities cape town's one of the most beautiful cities mm, yes i find japan one of the most fascinating but uh i don't know i'm hard pressed because i've been lucky i've seen a lot of the world and you know i i keep I, i'm overseas maybe once every month or five or six weeks so I, I continue for some reason to uh to do it so i've been to a lot of it yeah i'll think i'll th- i don't know I mean, if you've never been to india if you've never been to china you got i mean i just think those things ought to be on every, if you're, there's if, certain, yeah, there's a if list. If you can manage it, it yeah. But there's still some things I haven't done in Africa. There's some things I haven't done, um, and I've never been to Patagonia. So I've got things on my bucket list. I want to do in South, okay, well, when it's on my bucket list, I'll admit it here. I want to do in South Africa, which I've been to a few times, but I've never done a Boer War battlefield tour. See, <laughs> like I bet Churchill I'm, hiding in the mine, that yeah, sort of thing. I bet I'm the first person to come on your and who said that. I want to do a Boer War battlefield. Would the you Bo- dress up in a in no, the? Uh, no. Isn't that the first time the British wore the khaki? I don't it was know. the khaki war, right? Something like that. I don't know. But if you read uh, Thomas Pakenham's book about the Boer War, it's a classic, and the Boer War presaged a lot of World War One, but also Vietnam and things like that. It's mm-hmm. a, a colonial war against a declining public support. And a lot of important military as well as political insights. So I said, one day I want to walk the Boer War battlefields. I mean, I've done the Civil War battlefields, which is fascinating, a lot mm-hmm. of that. But I want to do the other. Great. All right. Well, you know, if, if, we'll join you. That'd be great if you'll, if you'll have us. Uh, well, uh, uh, also, I need a golfing partner. Also, I also want to, <laughs> while I'm there, I want to play golf on South African golf courses where you have animals running across the course. I think that'd be really cool. No way. They do. So yeah. in Montana, where we have golfed once, they... Every golf cart comes with bear spray because a bear can come jumping out at well, you. Well, first of all, you shouldn't play golf with golf carts. Golf is meant to be walked, so you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Well, I don't. I'm actually not a golfer at all. <laughs> I just did this once as like a as a lark. But <laughs> you you don't want me as a golfing partner. I've, I've played like three times in my life. I don't want you as a golfing partner. <laughs> <laughs> with all due respect. <laughs> but I, I would not hop into a golfing cart that has bear spray in it. If that's if that's you know, if there's a, some That's chance a greater than zero that a bear is going to attack me on the, the golf course. The only question I have is, can a golf cart outrun the bear? That's all I want to know. But you know what? I think the answer is no, but uh, that is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners? Like I said, I have admitted it. Uh, I've been watching Suits recently. I find that my great... Uh, my wife and others are big on the bear. Which I haven't oh, seen. Oh, is that the cooking restaurant show? My yeah. brother's been trying yeah, to get me to watch that. Yeah, so that's on my to uh, to do. I just watched something called with John Batiste. Was it called National Symphony or American Symphony? About John Batiste, who's just one of the most brilliant musicians and historians of music. And he and his uh, the woman he married, uh, who's a, a wonderful writer, just watched that on Netflix. 
but I'm I'm behind. I've been um, traveling a lot, yeah. and um, I, uh, I I'm not the I'm not a good source on this. I'm embarrassed to say this is one of my many many shortcomings. Uh, well, I I I understand that. Someone was, the other day was like, "You guys got to watch Outlander." And I'm like, "There's six seasons." I'm like, "Oh, I can't start that. Like, that's too much. I, I just need like a." One or two episode true crime documentary. That's more my speed. That'll take me a week to get through that much, you know. So, yeah, I'm behind. Most important second language for our kids to learn. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, a lot of people would say strategically Mandarin. I don't know. A lot would say Spanish just because it's so common. You know what? You know, it was Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower once said, I don't care what what religion a man has so long as he's got one. It's kind of my view about languages. Learn a second language. Learn Spanish. Learn French. Though French is probably fading as a kind of international diplomatic or whatever uh, language. I feel inadequate that I don't speak French. I can read it okay, but I never learned to speak it. So it's it's also on my bucket list of things I feel the need to... uh, to do i think it's as an american so much of the world that one would come into contact with speaks english and it makes us a little bit lazy on language exactly yeah on the other hand i know i'm really controversial on this i think languages are important but i'm very uneasy about young people in school spending a lot of time learning languages because language is something you can learn outside the classroom in many ways and there's certain other things you can only learn in the classroom so I've got a, a real question about how many hours in mm-hmm. as, as an education, high school or college, young people ought to be spending learning language. I once said that to a group of about 6,000 language teachers, and I needed police protection by the end, <laughs> by the end of the event. But you know, to your point, in, in your book, The World, people aren't learning who George Washington is. They're not going to learn French in our schools. Yeah, and I'm more concerned that Americans know who George Washington is, and they can speak French fluently. Yeah. I also feel insecure about it. I, I studied some Spanish. There was a point where I was actually had, I think, two or three maybe dreams in Spanish, you know, sort of getting there. Sueños. We be in. Very nice. Sueños. <laughs> uh, but it's pretty much gone. And then we traveled to Amsterdam, and all the Dutch, 100% of them speak Dutch and English. And then... The third, fourth, fifth languages tend to be, you know, German, French, yeah. something else. I feel inadequate. And and if you go to Africa, they speak like ten languages over there. Yeah. It's just amazing. So. I'm with you. No, I, every time I encounter that, I feel woefully ignorant and inadequate. Mm-hmm. All right, so another depressing moment for us. <laughs> no, we got a lot of work also, to do. Also, can I say one other thing? I, I studied a lot of languages when I was younger. I studied Hebrew. I studied Arabic. You know, Spanish, French. I've forgotten a lot of it. I used to be pretty good in some of them, but if you, it's like it it's like kind nuclear of weapons, use them or lose them. Yeah. So I feel uh, with language, um, I, I've lost. Is a that lot right of. with nuclear? Do you lose them? Well, that was the argument in NATO. I mean, that if at some point you had to be they prepared to time. use them, or they'd be overrun. Not that they degrade. The idea was in a, in a certain crisis, you only had certain windows, and part of deterrence depended upon oh. your willingness. It, it, it's a, a crazy phrase. I apologize, but my but languages. I don't know about you. They don't stick with me. So mm-hmm. if, I, if I don't use them, I lose them, then it's really frustrating to me. And then when I go back to those countries, and like I used to be, I was never fluent in Arabic, but I was okay. And now when I go to the Arab world, I, I just Wow, how many languages do, do you have that are at a sort of reasonable level? Uh, I'm almost, my English is pretty good. <laughs> 
All right. TV or movie that most accurate most accurately portrays the Situation Room. West Wing. So my son, uh, my son didn't love school. So, he, but he loved two things growing up. One was the History Channel, and the other was West Wing. And I think he saw every episode of West Wing maybe 10, 15 times, knew the entire script by heart. And, you know, I've watched a lot of them, too, and it's not, not bad. So I went online. The Situation Room is not actually just a room, right? It's sort of a complex of rooms over yeah, thousands but, of square but feet. But there is the main room in the sit room. One, okay, one sit room. There's a right. sit room, which is the room where... With a big conference table, the photo of Obama and... and when I was there, not Obama. <laughs> 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 and lots of screens. Okay. Okay. Uh, when I was working for at the White House for George H.W. Bush, so this is now 30, 35 years ago, it's when a lot of the technology was introduced. And we had the first, I guess then we called it closed circuit, classified meetings. So you didn't have to always get in a car and go across town or whatever. Uh, but yeah, but the, the main, the sit room, the main room in the sit room was kind of, it's basically a, a paneled uh, table, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 12 sit around it, and then there's chairs around the walls for the what's called the plus ones mm. for the assistants wow all right last question for our awesome guest richard haas one piece of advice for the listeners and i i am also down to just the olives here well first of all the olives are your it's roughage it's good for you it's the, veg- <laughs> the <roughage. laughs> it's the it's the vegetable component of your diet <laughs> you'll grow up to be big and strong and that's i think it's important with martinis to uh to do that at least two olives three is better uh, the more the merrier there. Um, advice for, got to be a little bit more specific. Give me a little bit. Well, I mean, really it could be on writing, it could be on parenting, it could be on life in general, politics, diplomacy. On any of the above. On on, on writing, my advice is... Um, Wait, sorry, before we before you answer that, would you tell us your latest book? Because um, The World, A Brief Introduction is the second most recent book you have one out penultimate the penultimate yes good the, the ultimate, ultimate book is a book called uh, the the bill of obligations the 10 habits of good citizens and title's pretty indicative but basically it's a it's a look at american democracy and it says we've become so obsessed with rights that we've lost sight of that a democracy or citizenship or has two sides to the coin. Yes, one is rights, and we've got to make this a more perfect union. Lincoln's unfinished work. But we have obligations to one another and to this country. And if we only think about rights, they'll inevitably get absolute, they'll come into conflict, we'll have gridlock, or worse yet, we'll have violence. So it's my attempt to slightly change the conversation in this country into thinking about what we owe one another, mm-hmm. what we owe the country, and how we, how we get out of this situation we're in it's not that and it's not a book i ever set out to write but increasingly uh, even though i'm a national security foreign policy guy i thought that was our biggest challenge uh, do you something just sprung to mind do you, do you think that what they do in israel with compulsory military service for a year or two do you think that would be a good thing here we won't accept the mandatory or compulsory part uh but i think public service is great because it's good for the individual he or she learns things they get trained I think it's great for the society. I love when Tom Brokaw used to write about the greatest generation. So it took a, a black kid from a poor family in the South and some Jewish kid from New York and some Catholic kid from Milwaukee, and they would come together and they'd live with one another and depend on one another and live, you know, maybe fight with one another, hopefully not die with one another. And I thought that was great for our society, that you, it created a fabric 
Um, so I don't think we can make it mandatory because Americans don't do well with the word mandatory, but I want to incentivize it. And we're beginning to see several states, beginning with California, some others, uh, Maryland, that are increasingly incentivizing public service. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really healthy thing. And, and employers could give preferences to hiring people did it. Graduate schools or colleges could say, hey, take a gap year or two. If you take a gap year or two after high school, we'll give you preference when it comes to college admissions. Mm-hmm. I think things like that would be really good for the individual, would be good for the uh, society. Uh, so advice. Uh, listen, so I, one we talked about before, which was to question assumptions. I would say as citizens to get informed and get involved. This is a critical year. and if I could ask anything of anybody would be take the time to get up to speed about the candidates, about the issues, then vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to matter this year. The consequences of this election will be enormous for the country and the world. So I really hope uh, people get involved. You know, democracy is not a spectator sport. People have to get involved. We're going to be affected. So it's in our own collective and individual self-interest to get informed and get involved, and always the case, but this year particularly so. So if I had to emphasize one thing, that's what I'd, uh, that's what I'd, that's what I'd argue for. Great. Well, Richard, what an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. No, thank you. This was, uh, this was a treat, and thank you for my very dry martini. <laughs> if you have been enjoying the audio of Dedicated, now we have more for you. We are now videoing our episodes of Dedicated. So go to YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Rumble, and the SiriusXM app, and you can see a video of our episodes of Dedicated with our awesome guests. Thank you. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.